Hey, what is going on everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. For those who do not know, this is a podcast I do here at least monthly in two different forms. First of all, it is available in a video visual form here on the Mr. Mario 2011 YouTube channel, as well as also on Rumble and Odyssey. It is also available as a audio only podcast, so you can take this around and listen to it wherever the hell you want to, like an actual podcast. Simply look up ModChat, all one word, on your favorite podcasting app, host, site, or provider, and you should hopefully be able to find it. I know it's not available on all of the providers, but it's available on most of them, at least. Either way, this is a podcast where, as I said, I come on here at least monthly, and I like to talk about things that I have found new, interesting, cool, uh, things that I just want to discuss, talk about, share with you. I'll do a little bit of show and tell at times in regards to the world of video game and video game console modding. So it's usually a fun time here. We're also usually joined by my dog Lily there just kind of sleeping in the corner, but overall it turns out to be pretty fun for the most part to do. Now it looks like this episode here, uh, we got a good amount of topics in regards to kind of just some old, some new, some stuff that is old is new again, and some stuff that is shiny, I guess. <laughs> We'll get into that. Uh, but either way, let's just go ahead and drill right into the topics here. First with the Dreamcast. Again, of all things, we covered it last month. We're going to do it again here this month. You know, we had some really awesome Dreamcast news that we had in the last episode. So you know what? Let's have some more really awesome Dreamcast news. This is something that I don't really cover all too often, but there's a lot of people out there that don't realize that the Dreamcast scene, kind of like the Xbox scene, has just kind of kept going all these years later which is great now this is a post from pc wizard 13 over on the dreamcast live site saying here daytona usa is back online and they're stating here just reading off the article it's been a while since i've been able to make one of these posts but the time has come once again to announce that another dreamcast game has been brought back online you know while i'm reading this let me go ahead and play some of the video as well too thanks to the work of a newcomer to the scene named ion cannon daytona usa is now playable online once again Daytona will without a doubt be a great addition to our current roster of online games and brings the overall total to 25. Update now 26 thanks to Driving Strikers. A huge thanks to everyone involved with this project including Ion Cannon who reverse engineered the server, Shuyuma who coded the software needed to get the game working via DreamPy, Zaiden who created the webpage for generating the Daytona battle key. I also want to give a shout out to a guy named Goodcow, who had the foresight to save his Daytona battle key from over two decades ago, which proved to be helpful. Such an amazing community we have. There are a few things to note about this game. Firstly, only the US and Japanese versions of the game have online multiplayer modes, so if you're in a PAL territory, you'll need to import the US version of the game. As of right now, the Japanese version has yet to be restored, but that may be an option in the future as well. Secondly, the game will require the recently released DreamPie 1.8 DLE to function online. You can grab the new image from the downloads page. If you need instructions on how to flash the image to your Pi's SD card, see the video here. And lastly, since I know people are going to ask, no. 
It doesn't support the broadband adapter. Only the standard modem is supported. So that's interesting. So you have to, for anyone who does not know, I'm just interjecting here, DreamPi essentially allows you to, uh, it's a firmware OS, I guess you can say, that you run on a Raspberry Pi. And from there, it's able to interface between the modem on the Dreamcast to the Pi itself to your own local connection that you're going to give to it. So at that point, you're still using, yeah, the original like 56K modem that's attached to the Dreamcast. However, you are still able to get online, but that's just interesting, though, that it's DreamPie specific here, and it doesn't use the broadband adapter. Uh, finalizing this off here, as per usual, if you want to play this game online, please refer to the connection guide for instructions, as this is a work in progress. If you have any issues, you can report them on the Dreamcast Talk thread here. There is one known issue where the game will crash after two races. Ion Cannon is looking into this, and will hopefully have it fixed soon. So let's check that connection guide, because I'm just curious about this. So if we're going to use DreamPie, for example, it says it's cheap, easy to set up and use. Every game connects on the first attempt. It has Dreamcast Now, which allows other players to see when you're online. So awesome. You can use the written tutorial here or video tutorial or a written one on PC. I guess they have a few here. But as you can see with this, yeah, you'll need a Raspberry Pi, an SD card with the DreamPi image, a Linux-compatible USB dial-up voice modem, a telephone cable, an Ethernet cable, and the Dreamcast browser software. They also say that you will need to build a line voltage inducer, so interesting to see on that. Um, I haven't gone through all of this myself, like setting this up, but this is really cool to see overall. I just love seeing, uh, you know, functionality in projects like this. Speaking of projects, maybe not a specific project we're thinking of, but a site here. Uh, for anybody who does not know, Xbox Scene is a site that went offline years and years ago uh, due to reasons that we really don't know about unfortunately you know I i've talked with some people who have really loyally followed it for a while and it's kind of just the person who really owned and operated the domain and everything it seems like it's still being registered but they are just one of those people like no presence online or anything cannot find them cannot get a hold of them so just the original xbox scene domain and the site have just been gone for a while which has been really sad because uh, i'm unfortunately one of those people i really kind of caught the tail end of xbox scene i was always kind of aware of its existence but i only really checked it out and like delved in really at the end of it right before it went offline and it went offline like shortly after the Xbox One came out, I want to say. Uh, either way, there is something exciting here because there's just been, you know, a community for years that has really just loved Xbox scene and the Xbox scene here, both of them. Uh, however, this is not the original site. This is at a new domain, which is xbox-scene.info, and really just kind of want to signal boost this and show that this site is up and running, and, you know, you can find a lot of new people here, a lot of old heads as well, and really the goal is, it seems like, just to not only push the Xbox and the 360 forward, but also have a lot of that wealth really put back on here, not just, you know, sitting on an archive somewhere. Uh, if we check out the forums, for example, uh, there's a lot that's been going on here. Uh, I just made an account here recently, but you can find, you know, of course, the Xbox scene Discord. Uh, there are, uh, you know, new threads and stuff coming up in regards to dashboards that are being developed and still worked on. SirBios, for example, that's really the newer BIOS that's really worked on these days. Uh, you have a lot. I mean, there's a big focus for the original Xbox, much like there was for um, the original Xbox scene site. Uh, however, 
as you can see here there's also a 360 page which is slowly coming up here so i will say uh forms have been you know kind of some that's been dying it's a lot of a lot of stuff's been on Reddit for just so many years at this point, but if you're wanting a Xbox and Xbox 360 modding-centric form to join up with, Xbox scene looks like it will probably be one that will be here to stay, hopefully so. So, uh, it will be linked down below in the description of the video upload, check it out. Here we have something from Chris Peville, and they state here, announcing Flippy Drive, the no-solder open-source disk emulator for the GameCube. Featuring SD and Wi-Fi disk loading, audio streaming, Pico W based with BLE file in menu config, faster than all memory card slot SD2SP broadband adapter methods. And this is being developed by Team Off-Broadway, which consists of Chris Peville themselves, as well as Trevor Rudolph. Uh, so let's go ahead and see what we got here. We got a quick 20 second video, which I'll try and blow up here. Here we go. So just checking this out. He turns on the GameCube, so forgive the quality on this just because this is Twitter here, or I guess X as it's being, <laughs> as it's being set up right now, uh, but the device is installed in there. Uh, this is hooked up to their laptop as well, playing this. All right. The GameCube turns on. What do we got? And we got a game that's up and running. Oh, that's Smash. All right. There we go. Easy as that. That was beautiful booted in real quick uh, taking a look at the other two photos here they have one photo which seems to be this is super cool so the gamecube of course is taken apart right here and then you have this interface right here which has a it looks like this is a printed circuit board which has a connection here where you can physically connect a raspberry pi pico w uh, so you get, of course, that uh, wireless functionality on there. But you take this, you connect it into this board itself here. You then plug in your micro SD or your micro SD card with an adapter, I guess, or your SD card, whatever you can use. I actually like that they have the uh, the SD card available here, like the full size SD card. And then there's this ribbon cable that connects from the actual board itself over to the disk drive connector. Uh, just a small little thing here. And then it looks a little something like this. Granted, I don't think it's going to look like this in the end. There's going to be, you know, of course, I'm sure 3D printed files that will have it nicely nested in place. And this is still a prototype, mind you. But still, this is wonderful to see and really just shows more stuff you can do with the Raspberry Pi Pico. Look at this thing. I also want to highlight another tweet here from Chris saying audio streaming is finally reliable between the live ADPCM decoding, multiple DMA channels flinging pages around, gapless playback, and that ridiculous configuration protocol, it's more code than the disk interface proper. I can see why the wiki wasp just skipped it entirely. And with that, I'm closing all my terminal windows and software tabs. I think we should now be able to run nearly every title, and I'm going to work on the drive optional hardware revision while Trevor Rudolph brews up some cool CubeSive software. So very awesome to see here. Just checking out this video. They do have it set up. And from what I saw with the video before, uh, it is playing audio on here, which is fantastic to see. So overall, this project is fantastic to see. I'm really liking this. They have another one here saying, lots of asked about optionally keeping the OEM drive and use Flippy Drive. 
it should be a net zero cost for complicated reasons, but I don't know if it's niche or attractive. Is it worth investigating for a week or so? If it affects too much stuff, we'll pass for now. Uh, so it looks like, yeah, they're going to have options where if you want to retain the DVD drive in there and have an ODE installed, or if you just want to rip it out entirely, you can do that. So, you know, I, I really think I'm... <sighs> I want to install one of these once they are all ready to go. So this will be awesome to see. Just uh, be sure to follow this project and check out its progress. Some good news with Flippy Drive is that we have a little bit of a watch this space, I guess you can say, with a pretty minimal site here showing Flippy Drive being the open source ODE mod chip for the GameCube. Now here they're stating that the exciting new Flippy Drive mod chip will be available for pre-order September 9th at the tentative price of $25 without Pico or $32 with Pico W included, $35 with a $3 pre-order discount. And some of the features it has will be a no solder internal install into the original disk drive, loading games off the SD card over Wi-Fi, configuration with BLE using PC or phone, no software patching, built-in game selection without using Swiss, so that's cool, huh? Uh, also support for loading games with Swiss, uses commodity RP2040 parts making a parts shortage unlikely, and original Nintendo disk drivers are not destroyed to get connectors. And they also have a little bit of a roadmap for the Bluetooth game controller support for Pico W coming in 2024, and some add-ons with the USB drive loader to include SSD hard drive adapters and the USB game controller support also coming in 2024. Now the unconfirmed feature here is that you can keep the original disk drive installed and play physical discs. They are still working on that but it's unconfirmed right now. Either way this will be linked down below in the description of the video upload and again this will definitely be kind of a watch this space here for flippy drive. In some really awesome PS5 news which I was not expecting this here we got something new from Flats, which states here from the Wololo article that he dumped the PS5 secure processor and confirms he has a PS5 hypervisor exploit via a PS4 game save exploit. So I was definitely surprised to see this here. Now just reading here, it states PlayStation hacker Flats claims he has gained access to the PS5's platform secure processor. This means he has access to most decryption keys on the console. The hacker also confirmed he has a hypervisor exploit and added the whole chain was triggered via software, no hardware hack, through a disk-based PS4 game. No details have been given on what firmware this was achieved on, and there wasn't any plan announced to release the exploit chain. However, he has been known for his past work on the PS4, as we've known about this, and now is recently involved in PS5 security. And with some Discord snippets here, he states, I loaded corrupted save game that exploits game, hypervisor exploitation straight from save game, which is really crazy to see here. Since the hypervisor has been exploited, this is asking what's next here, to which it states from Zeko Xiao that Flat Z now has access to all PS5 decryption keys, Having access to the keys would at the very least mean a possibility to decrypt firmware files and game files. This can be useful at the very least for hackers looking to reverse engineer the latest and greatest firmware updates to look for more vulnerabilities. Generally speaking, there's not a guarantee that Flats will release anything. Some people believe he has found and leveraged the same exploit that Fail Overflow used almost two years ago. They haven't released anything, and Flats hasn't stated he plans to either. 
Unless the hacker plans to release his findings, this doesn't mean much for the end user at the moment, although it appears you're in better shape than most if you own a low firmware disk edition PS5. In regards to some additional comments here, there was one person who was asking, well, flat said FPKG, so that'd be the fake package files might be possible without hypervisor exploitation, to which flat said, yeah, you need to see what Slayer's Govi is doing. I think these tricks may help, to which... Spectre ended up piggybacking off there saying, yeah, and part of that I covered in my presentation as well. It involves hijacking mailbox, but it's a lot of work. And if you're someone who has a digital-only edition here, it looks like this is covered. Wolo himself actually asked, I think what's unclear for most of us is whether a disc-based game exploit is the only viable user mode entry point to access this hypervisor exploit. To which Flats replied, you can use everything else, I guess. BDJ is better since it's more privileged, I think. So really awesome to see here. Now, what can we see from some things like this? Well, this is not directly from it here, but it's something that's also still equally exciting on the PlayStation 5. It looks like there's now game patches and mods that are coming to the PlayStation 5 on PS5 games and, of course, PS4 games. Here, this is with Gravity Rush 2 running at 60 frames per second, and this is progress on the Lib Hijacker means that game mods are now a thing on PS5. So this is from Illusion or Illusion 0002, in which I've shown some of their work here, at least on Mod Chat, but they state that developer Illusion has showcased Gravity Rush 2 running at 60 frames per second on the PS5, thanks to improvements on Astrelski's Lib Hijacker. Mods and patches are now a possibility on the PS5, at least for PS4 games. Illusion has taken to Gravity Rush 2, a PS4 game he had already modded for 60 frames per second a long time ago on the PS4, to demonstrate that it is now possible to do the same thing on hacked PS5s. Now an update to this, I initially stated this was limited to PS4 games. Illusion has now confirmed the same is indeed possible on PS5 games, showcasing the PS5 version of Uncharted Legacy of Thieves, which makes this even more exciting. So that's super awesome to see here overall. And for some more information on Lib Hijacker for the PS5, it's covered here stating that Lib Hijacker is a mechanism to run separate processes homebrew on the PS5, escaping the initially hacked process either WebKit or BDJB, means this, among other things, that exiting the original WebKit Blu-ray player process doesn't close the exploit anymore, so running a game, official or homebrew, while still being in a hacked context is now doable. In other words, this means things like running a homebrew, or in this case modding a game such as Gravity Rush 2 at runtime, is now a possibility. Think patches, cheats, 60 frames per second mods, and the like. So again, super awesome to see here. And one of the most important things about this is that the PS5 being a much more powerful machine, this opens the possibility to patch many PS4 games for 60 frames per second support with little to no compromises, which again is just phenomenal to see overall. Something exciting I think for both the preservation scene as well as the PlayStation Vita scene is that there's been a new update here from Matthew LH as well as SKG Liba in which they have dumped the PlayStation Vita's first loader boot ROM and now they can fix any bricked PlayStation Vita. So this is a setup, I, I believe I'd seen this on Twitter originally, uh, but this is a uh, setup that I believe Matthew LH was showing here with his, I guess, glitching setup and such. However, this starts off by saying, when you think everything that needed to be known about the Vita had already been discovered, hackers keep surprising you with a new release. Yesterday, Matthew LH and SKG Liba 
have released a dump of the PS Vita's first loader, following a successful glitch of the console's boot sequence. SKG Liba states that this will help fix any bricked console in the near future and is expecting to release the tools as well as write up by the end of the year. Now it appears the PS Vita's first loader had never been dumped before and for those interested in the PS Vita's boot sequence a summary can be found on the dev wiki here but it's quoted here as showing the PS Vita main application processor is an ARM Cortex A9 MP core. It implements ARM Trust Zone for execution in both a non-secure world and a sandbox secure world. However, it is not the first processor to run on boot. The CMEP processor is the actual secure boot device rather than the ARM processor. The CMEP processor boot ROM first loader is the first code running on PlayStation Vita start. Once it starts, it likely maps the eMMC and directly reads in the secondloader.emp or secondloader.emp underscore from the eMMC SLB2 partition. This is in the native load format of the boot ROM. There are two layers of encryption. First, it decrypts the per console layer that was added during the firmware installation. After that, it decrypts the factory encrypted layer that begins execution. We see a screenshot of a logic analyzer here, and it states that SKG Liba had the following to say about yesterday's result, emphasize mine. Uh, boot ROM glitching during SD boot is quite easy way less work than expected, so that means it lets us fix any bricked Vita. We have reversed around one-third of the available jig commands. I hope that we can wrap everything up for public release later this year. Now, it looks like this will require some pretty tight soldering at this point here. This is quite small, as we can see, in order to do this. However, it's super awesome to see overall, so uh, something that I just, I, I love to see stuff like this. You know, we have Baryon Sweeper on the PSP, and it looks like we're getting some of that same love uh, in a similar way here on the PlayStation Vita to keep it protected. So it looks like we have an unfortunate update here with retail emulation and homebrew on the Xbox One and Xbox Series consoles. Now, for anybody who does not know, I have covered this uh, at one point in mod chat here. I believe a few months ago when the retail emulators were taken offline and I essentially said just giving kind of a TLDW in that regard there that I've never tried the retail side of homebrew on my consoles and that's never something I've really ever agreed with uh, just because we have dev mode it's available there and the limitations of dev mode are pretty open for the most part. Essentially, the main limitation I know from dev mode, if you are in dev mode and you're developing and running apps there, is really just don't make a app store of some kind. Don't make a storefront in that regard. However, these are unauthorized emulators that are still developed on that UWP platform or ported over there, uh, but they kept being put up on the retail store. There was kind of some hidden ways to get them, you know, getting whitelisted, getting links, all of that, and Microsoft has been trying to take them down for years. Uh, they did come back in some way here recently, which was essentially whitelisting and putting them behind a paywall, but we see here from Gamer12 or Gamer13 stating, retail mode emulation is dead. Microsoft are now dishing out 15-day suspensions for anyone using retail mode emulators. TRW and Sir Mangler have gotten their consoles permanently banned with appeal as well. Note that nobody else has received a ban. And I know this is a older tweet now because I've seen 
I have seen other people who've reported they've been getting their suspensions. Uh, however, they state, we will immediately be removing anything and everything retail mode related on our Discord. And we strongly recommend removing any and all retail mode emulators installed on your console. So some image credits to Zaza from their Discord here. And looking at this photo here, it states, the Xbox safety team has found that recent behavior by the Xbox profile based on your email address violated one or more terms of the community standards for Xbox or Microsoft services agreement. And in here, they don't say explicitly there's a 14-day, 15-day suspension, but I certainly believe it on here. So either way, I guess my thoughts on this are that I honestly thought suspensions and bans would happen years ago. I'm honestly surprised it took so long to do something like this. So I wasn't truly surprised that this was going to happen. And some people might be wondering, well, what about just like regular users who might be rightfully or wrongfully banned or what have you? I will say this, um, because the apps kept going down, because the distribution methods kept changing on there, you had to go out of your way to install them. What I'm saying is there was no way you would ever just open up the app store, start browsing, and then just accidentally install RetroArch or accidentally install Dolphin. Uh, you really had to go out of your way to get these here. And it's not anything difficult, mind you, but going to an external website, getting signed up there, getting a whitelisted version of the app, and then adding that to your account and everything, uh, that's all going out of the ecosystem to get that. So again, what I'm saying here is I don't think there's going to be any accidental bans from here because you very much had to do this with purpose in order to get the emulators and everything to begin with. Uh, but really here, go back to dev mode. That's going to be the option. That should have always been the option. That's really my own opinion on that here. Uh, but if you miss retail mode emulation, sorry, it's... It's not going to be here for a bit. <laughs> Something awesome I love to see is another release of the Bucanero Apollo save tool, this time now built for PlayStation 2 of all things. So just covering this here from the GitHub page, Apollo save tool is an application to manage save game files on the PlayStation 2. This homebrew app allows to download, unlock, patch, and resign save game files directly on your PS2. The features it has are that it's easy to use, so no advanced setup needed, standalone, no computer required, everything happens on the PS2, and automatic settings, so auto detection of user settings. And I believe we can take a look at the latest releases here and see what all is available. So this is the first public release of it for PS2 in which it has save game listing from the memory card, USB, CD, and host. Uh, import saves in PSU, PSV, Max, CBS, XPS, SPS formats to memory cards. Yeah, there were a lot of memory cards there. You can also export and backup memory card saves to PSU, PSV, CBS, and ZIP formats. Save game patching, so with save wizards or game genie codes or BSD scripts and save data hex editing. Now the limitations are that it seems like there's no network features on this and there's also no PS1 save game support, but that's cool to see overall. I like to cover some of these reverse engineering efforts with games when I do see them. And this here, it was funny. It didn't even come across, you know, my, my timeline quite literally. I, I think it was some kind of if anything, I think it was an article that was recommended to me. It wasn't like a tweet or anything else. Uh, but this is for Wipeout Phantom Edition, which I did not know this was released or being worked on here. Uh, but it says here, Wipeout Phantom Edition is an enhanced PC source port of the original Wipeout. It uses game data from the PlayStation version and is much more comparable to the PlayStation version than the official PC port. It features a uncapped frame rate, uh, high resolution rendering, distant geometry fade, ship lighting, 
increased view distance, configurable aspect ratio and widescreen support, optional lo-fi resolution mode, maintained PSX accurate rasterization and blending. It has keyboard and gamepad input support, wall collision response options, so for modern, classic, like moderns is uh, comparable to ballistic NG, Classic is comparable to Wipeout 2. Legacy, well, there's just a tombstone there. Wall scrape particle effects and audio. It features new music and sound effects system, 3D audio for sound effects, uh, additional options menus for the UI and keyboard and gamepad control configuration. And for the technical stuff, there's a new config file system and automatic game data detection. Now, there is a big setup uh, instruction right here, but the TLDR is it says download the latest release. Put your PlayStation USA region .bin and .q files in Wipeout slash disk images and launch the game. So this is something, uh, you know, this is something I really want to cover on here. Uh, it goes into more detail, of course, but with that, we also have some screenshots. And this looks beautiful. Look at this. This is awesome to see. I, I really did not follow this until now, so super awesome overall. If you're a Wipeout lover, you might want to give this a shot. So in regards to an episode I made a few months ago, which was talking about Dolphin Steam and the Wii Common Key, a quick TLDR was that the Dolphin emulator, which emulates the GameCube and Wii incredibly well, was coming to Steam. It was going to be free, it was going to offer, you know, Steam cloud save support and such, and apparently what happened was uh, there was no DMCA takedown or anything, uh, there was also no cease and desist, but essentially Valve ended up reaching out to Nintendo, asked, hey, uh, what are your thoughts on this emulator coming onto our storefront? And Nintendo essentially came back and said, yeah, we believe this is illegal because this emulates our games and we don't authorize it and it makes use of cryptographic keys. Uh, so with that, Valve themselves ended up taking it down at that point. They then forwarded that original letter from Nintendo over to uh, the Dolphin Foundation and then appended to that stating that the only way Valve would allow the Dolphin emulator on Steam is if the Dolphin Foundation and Nintendo end up coming to an agreement, which we all know is not going to happen here. Uh, so on July 20th, we're just kind of going to go over bits of this here, but the Dolphin Foundation ended up putting up this blog post here asking what happened to Dolphin on Steam. And they state here, first things first, Nintendo did not send Valve or Dolphin a DMCA Section 512C notice, commonly known as a DMCA takedown against our Steam page. Nintendo has not taken any legal action against Dolphin Emulator or Valve. So they essentially state what I had just talked about for about a minute, and then they said considering the strong legal wording at the start of the document and the citation of the DMCA law, we took this letter very seriously. We wanted to take some time and formulate a response. However, after being flooded with questions, we wrote a fairly frantic statement on the situation as we understood it at the time, which turned out to only fuel the fires of speculation. So after a long stay of silence, we have a difficult announcement to make. We are abandoning our efforts to release Dolphin on Steam. Valve ultimately runs the store and can set any condition they wish for software to appear on it. But given Nintendo's long-held stance on emulation, we find Valve's requirements for us to get approval from Nintendo for a Steam release to be impossible. Unfortunately, that's that. But there are some more serious matters to discuss, some that are much bigger than Dolphin's Steam release. So here they're mainly talking about the key, and they say here, over the past few weeks, a lot has been said about Dolphin, including the Wii Common Key. 
As you may know, Wii games are encrypted, and the Wii uses the common key that is burned into the console to decrypt Wii discs. Wii software does not have any access to the key whatsoever. However, some smart engineers and a pair of tweezers was all it took to extract the key. If you haven't heard this story before, we recommend checking out the 25C3 presentation on the actual tweezer exploit that gave Team Tweezers its original name. It's an incredibly entertaining video that's worth your time. If you aren't familiar with Team Tweezers, perhaps you know them under their modern name, Fail Overflow. The extraction of the Wii Common Key did not elicit any kind of legal response from anyone. It was freely shared everywhere, and this is actually a link to uh, the HackMe.com article uh, that is talking about just a lot of keys and listing many keys for the system. Uh, and eventually made its way into Dolphin's codebase more than 15 years ago, to which they are pointing here to the actual open source, uh, I, I guess, commit itself on Dolphin, uh, committed by a Team Tweezers member, no less. These keys have been publicly available for years now, and no one has really cared. U.S. law regarding this has not changed, yet a lot of armchair lawyers have come out talking about how foolish we were to ship the Wii Common Key. Fueling this is Nintendo's letter to Valve, which cites the anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA, particularly because Dolphin has to decrypt Wii games. Now going a bit forward, they state here, this sounds extremely bad at a glance, and we certainly had a moment of panic after first reading it. But now that we have done our homework and talked to a lawyer, we are no longer concerned. We have a very strong argument that Dolphin is not primarily designed or produced for the purpose of circumventing protection. Dolphin is designed to recreate the GameCube and Wii hardware as software, and to provide the means for a user to interact with this emulated environment. Only an incredibly tiny portion of our code is actually related to circumvention. Additionally, GameCube games aren't actually encrypted at all, and Dolphin can also play homebrew and is used in the development of game mods. There are even homebrew and mods that specifically target Dolphin as its own platform. Given that it has the ability to emulate more memory and processing power than is possible on the original consoles. That's why there are dolphin modes in many modern homebrew games. Moving a bit down here, I, I think this is important to note because this even, you know, I guess myself, you know, I'd even said this here where my take originally was essentially, hey, it might be good to take out the key and either have the user provide decrypted dumps or uh, provide the key themselves, whichever works. However, they state here, after this situation blew up, we received many requests and even some demands to remove all Wii keys from our code base. We're disappointed that so many people on YouTube and social media didn't even consider that maybe the team had done their research and risk analysis before including the keys, and just assumed that now it was pointed out to us we would remove them. However, we do not think that including the Wii common key actually matters. The law could easily be interpreted to say that circumventing a Wii's disk encryption by any means is a violation. As such, it is our interpretation that removing the Wii keys would not change whether the exemption in 17 U.S.C. section 1201F applies to us or not. In fact, we think that offloading decryption tasks onto a potential third-party application would make the situation worse for everyone. As such, we believe leaving the keys as they are is the best course of action. And to all the armchair lawyers out there, the letter to Valve did not make any claims that we were violating a U.S. copyright by including the Wii Common Key, as a short string of entirely random letters and numbers generated by a machine is not copyrightable under current U.S. law. If that ever changes, the world will be far too busy to think about emulation. 
And finally, they're saying, what happens now? We do not believe that Dolphin is in any danger. We can look to the end of the message Val forwarded to us to show this. After all the scary language, Nintendo made no demands and only a single request to Valve. Quoting Nintendo's letter here, We specifically request that Dolphin's coming soon notice be removed and that you ensure the emulator does not release on the Steam store moving forward. So it looks like that's that. They have, you know, run this by their lawyers on here. That is their interpretation of it. And honestly, you know, if, if that's how they're running with it, all good. I am cool with that. That works out. Uh, Dolphin itself is still downloadable. You can still grab it here just fine. The only thing is, it's not coming onto Steam, but... I guess there's not much being lost because it was never on Steam to begin with, so people who want Dolphin on their computers or devices, they'll still be able to get it. And a final thing, just because people did want Dolphin on Steam, but it says here, as a silver lining, some of the features being developed for the Steam release will still work in Dolphin's normal builds, and are still being developed. One of the features we are most excited for is a full big picture GUI that can be used directly with a controller. That is still going to happen regardless of a Steam release, alongside several smaller features that were meant to be quality of life improvements for Steam builds. So that's cool. So if you're still going to be downloading Dolphin, grabbing it from here, there's still going to be good stuff that you'll be able to get. So, so there's not going to be all too much lost. One thing I do love about console mods is that it's really nice to be able to take the original hardware and pull the best signal you can out of it or just even dramatically improve it. Uh, I know for myself, you know, I was hooking up, uh, for example, like component cables to the Xbox to the PS2. Now we have upscalers for older systems. There is RGB SCART and there's plenty of adapters that you can use with that, whether you're using an adapter with an upscaler or if you're using something else, whether it's internal, external, an adapter, straight cables, whatever it is here. Uh, however, this is a article over from uh, Retro RGB written by Bob there talking about the Pixel FX Retro Gym HDMI mod, which the big thing is this is PS2 compatible. Now just reading this off here, he states Pixel FX have just opened orders on their new internal HDMI mod board called the Retro GEM. This one HDMI board will work with multiple consoles, similar to Fixel's HDMI board announced last year. The cost for the hardware starts at $120 for the base kit. However, you'll need to spend a total of about $190 to include the software upgrade they're calling the Shiny Edition. The standard edition can output from 240p to 720p content with Bob D interlacing for 480i content. All other features, including 1080p and motion adaptive deinterlacing, will require the upgrade. The Retro Gym is compatible with many PlayStation 2 revisions at launch. However, considering that the console's library is 99% 480i, you'll really want to buy the version for that one. Pre-order here with shipping expected by September. Now let's go ahead and check this out here from the Pixel FX site. So we have it here. It's just this, I think it's a cool idea. It's just this one uh, HDMI board as you can see it's the board itself it has an HDMI out and then there's a flex cable that's going to depend on the console that you're installing this in uh, so just checking out a few of these. Here we go. Uh, they have, I believe, the PS1 Digital under their lineup, uh, but this is compatible with the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, which is big, the N64, as well as the Dreamcast. So as opposed to buying a DC Digital, a N64 Digital, a PS1 Digital, the idea is you would now buy the Retro Gym, and then you would buy the accompanying 
uh, flex cables for your specific console and you would install it in there. Now here's the comparison we were talking about before. If you just get these standard, uh, really these are, I think the base, the lowest cost for like only the PCB is $100. It's like $99, $100. Uh, but of course, if you want to actually install this, you do need the cables and such for it. So let's say 120 bucks. So here, if you just get the base version, it's really just, you know, direct mode, 480p, 720p, uh, Bob Deaner laser, basic scan lines. However, if you get the Gym Shiny Edition for a $70 upgrade, it seems, you're able to go all the way up to 1440p. You're able to get Weave and Motion Adaption Deinterlacing. Uh, you can get uh, really custom scaling there. And then you also get adaptive and slot masking type uh, retro effects there. So that's more for the scan lines and such. So it seems like the Gym is what a lot of people would be going for. But if you're someone who, this is what I've seen a lot, if you're someone who you just just need 720p out from your system uh, or 480p out and you're going to handle any uh, upscaling even if you do want that. Um, if you just want to handle upscaling with an external device such as the RetroTINK 5X, uh, you can do that here just fine with the base version. However, I will say even for someone like myself who I'm interested in getting this for the PlayStation 2, I'm going to want... Uh, I'm going to want the shiny edition for that. But this is how it is for every single system. So keep in mind, let's say you're going to be modding uh, these four systems right here. You're really going to need to decide how much you're going to be spending on each of them because you're going to be spending at least 120 bucks on them. But also there might be times where, again, you really want to push that resolution upscaling further. You're going to be spending another $70 per system that you get that software upgrade on. Uh, so right here we have this installed in a N64. But look at that here. It looks just absolutely lovely. Uh, so we have that in the N64. Uh, this is actual photos of the kit itself. So this is for the N64 Digital. Uh, well, formerly known as the N64 Digital. So this is just compatible with the Nintendo 64 itself. Uh, we have this here for the original PlayStation. So it looks real clean right there. Uh, this would be replacing, of course, the PS1 Digital. And it looks a little something like this. That is looking super clean. So just absolutely love how this looks right here. So that is again going to replace the PS1 digital setup. Uh, here we have the actual lineup for the PlayStation 1 install, which is definitely, it's 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 not for the faint of heart. I'll, I'll definitely say that. <laughs> then we have the PS2, which check this out. We have it on a slim and that just looks super clean. It is upside down there, mind you, but it does look quite clean. Uh, right here we have the internals installed on the PS2 Slim, so it looks a little something like this. I've never seen it like this before. Um, we have the PS2 Kit, it looks like. Yeah, PS2 Fat Flex, so we have all this for the PS2 Fat. Uh, how's it look on the PS2 Fat? We have it look like this. All right, that's looking good as well, too. Uh, I just don't like this, my own nitpick. I actually... No, no, this one's right side up. The PS2 is upside down, but the actual cable is right side up, so that, that's all fine there. Yeah, it looks a little something like that. All right, awesome. Real cool to see. Now, the nice thing is, since they're really focusing on one product at this point and then getting all the flex cables and stuff situated there, uh, they're able to use this for other consoles. Uh, so right now we have four consoles that's compatible with, but it says more coming soon. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see this for, of course, the original Xbox. Uh, I also wouldn't be too surprised if we see it for even older consoles as well. Uh, like there was stuff for like the Nintendo or the Super Nintendo or what have you, because you really don't have to change 
the actual PCB. You have the PCB, you need to make sure the software is on there to support those systems, but then at that point, you just need, you know, all the other uh, breakout boards and flex cables and such, and you're good at that point. I do know there was controversy behind the shiny edition there, and I I guess I see it on both sides on one hand, because at first my, my thought, I kind of questioned it here, but I get it. Let's say you install this in, uh, let's say the PlayStation 2, for example, you just want to save money. You spend 120 bucks, you install it in the PS2, uh, but you realize that you don't really like Bob D interlacing. You realize that you want to go beyond uh, 720p, uh, and there's some other things that you just want to do with it just on the system itself. At that point, you can pay a $70 upgrade after you've installed it, pay the $70 upgrade, and then it's just a software update that's on there. You don't have to actual sw actually swap out the hardware, the PCB itself, it's just a software update. Uh, so every single of these retro gems is going to be compatible with the shiny upgrade which you can get later on or you can of course just you know buy it right off the bat so if you want to choose to do that you can uh my only thing is really going to be in this more to pixel fx uh, I wonder how well protected this is going to be because I also have no doubt that people are going to be getting a hold of the retro gym and they're going to see how they can get it to a shiny version uh, without paying that fee. So I'm sure they've thought about that, no doubt, but I guess we'll see how that goes. Uh, we also need to see, of course, how good this device is, but just looking at their previous lineups with like the N64 digital, DC digital, PS1 digital, and now the PS2, which people have been waiting and just begging for an HDMI solution for like this, uh, I don't have any doubts that it will be a bad product. Um, but of course, we'll just have to see once it comes out. Now, at the end of these episodes here, I like to cover something in regards to the modding community that could be a little tangent to it, but I just find interesting, cool, funny, what have you. And I did cover this a bit on uh, my other podcast here, Mario's Minute. Uh, but here, this is talking about a recent update that happened in July which seems to have fixed the Call of Duty games on the Xbox 360. Uh, unfortunately, the PS3 games haven't been touched, and a lot of people were thinking that Activision ended up fixing up the games uh, because of the Activision Blizzard uh, buyout that was happening with Microsoft. However, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like people were incorrect with that in the best possible way. Because here it states in this post, uh, PSA, it wasn't just COD servers that were fixed. It is a good portion of the 360 library. And they state here, me and many other people on this sub have been enjoying playing the classic COD games after the servers were fixed. But it appears that many other 360 games were fixed as well. I've seen a few posts mentioning this and I figured I would post which games I thought were working in. So some of the posts here, for example, Battle Block Theater, I was able to find people playing the basketball mini game about a week or so, Dritos Crash Course, this game used to have ghost lobbies in the browser, but now functions correctly. I found one person playing about a week ago. Gears of War 1. I tried this out on Saturday and was able to find a few people on. Uh, the orange box for Team Fortress 2. From my personal experience, this game seems to be the most active outside of the COD games. Previously, the game browser only worked occasionally. Now it works like new. I have been able to find many different lobbies every time I have tried. It looks like Xbox Live Indie games seem to be working, although they're not super well populated. Uh, some other update tier as well. Uh, for the other Gears of War games, many people have confirmed that these games are working in the comments, on other Reddit posts, and even on Twitter, so it is likely safe to say that these games are all working again. 
One that surprised me is Shadowrun. Uh, a few people in the comments mentioned that Shadowrun is now working, and there are also multiple articles mentioning this, so this game should likely work. Uh, also, it apparently has crossplay with PC. However, a while ago, I, like years and years ago, I ended up reading that uh, I guess when Games Windows Live ended up going down, um, I don't know if the Shadowrun PC version fully went down or if it was just the crossplay, but I don't believe the crossplay functionality works anymore between PC and 360, unfortunately. Either way, though, uh, it seems like that's just this cool overall it seems like matchmaking is working again on the 360 properly uh, of course the 360 it, like the anti-cheat protection hasn't changed on there uh the banning system has not changed on there uh so uh games are still going to be modded up and such so do keep a lookout for that unfortunately However, when it comes down to everything actually working, as opposed to just being an abandoned wasteland, it now seems to be working. This was so big to the point that when it was discovered the Call of Duty games were working properly, from what I recall, all the Call of Duty games on the 360 started becoming best-selling digital titles on there, and even the Xbox Series X in some territories was selling out. Because many people might be looking at this and wondering if people are just pulling out their 360s. No, they're not. Uh, remember, all these games here, for the most part, um, I would say most, if not all of them, like not the indie games, but like most of these games here are backwards compatible. So... People are playing them on their Xbox One or their Xbox Series. So it's cool to see overall. We've also just seen record-breaking numbers as well too, where I believe Modern Warfare 3 on 360 had over 100,000 players on the game. That game is from 2011. It, really awesome to see overall, but hey, there's love for these games here. Not only people wanting to kind of relive those 2007 to 2012 era times, but also a lot of people who just missed out on it. Like they might play like Call of Duty Warzone and the newer Call of Duties, and they just want to go back and try what a, in my opinion, a proper Call of Duty is like. <laughs> So awesome to see here. This was good news overall. So that is about it for this episode of Mod Chat. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it, watching it wherever you wanted to. I hope you got to learn something. I hope you got to be entertained. Uh, maybe it even put you to sleep a little bit like Lily back there. Either way, for people who come to the end of these episodes and really make it to the end, first of all, thank you. Secondly, I like to do something typically a little fun here where I like to pick a keyword or a key phrase, and then I'll have you all use it in the comments of the video upload. So that way, if you use the keyword or key phrase, I'll know that you've made it to the end of this episode. Now, if you're listening to the audio-only version of this, don't worry, come on over to the video. Be sure to leave a comment with this keyword or key phrase and i'll be sure to find it now you know what let's go with phone what kind of phone do you have do you like smartphones do you like feature phones more do you think that having a smartphone is too much of a distraction so you're going back to a feature phone are you happy to have you know the advent of smartphones here and uh really just having supercomputers in our pockets at this point are you team ios team android windows phone maybe uh even though the platform died maybe you're still just like hanging on just because the aesthetic was pretty cool with that overall. Uh, either way, use that word phone. Use it as your keyword in your comment on the video upload, and I'll know that you've made it to the end of this episode. Anyways, that is about it for this episode. Thank you all very much for listening, watching, hanging out, doing all that fun stuff here. If you enjoyed this video and this episode, a like would absolutely be appreciated. If you didn't like it, a dislike is fine as well too. As I always say though, this is Mr. Mario signing off. Thank you all for watching, everyone, and until next month, or next time.